Okay, so we're going to jump right into it this morning. Uh, this morning I want to talk about questions, um, and, and specifically one important question. But I think we all ask a lot of questions, uh, and with questions come decisions. And with decisions can oftentimes come decision fatigue. I don't know if anybody has ever heard of decision fatigue, but we've probably all experienced it at some point or another. And it usually strikes that you know that you're suffering from decision fatigue when you can't make a simple decision. So uh, I'll tell you. So we were going out the other night. I'm not chronological. I don't remember which day it was. Maybe it was the afternoon. Maybe it wasn't even night. Anyway, we left the house. We're headed here, I think. Again, details, fuzzy. We're driving, and Grace needed something to eat. I knew that before we left the house, but I didn't know where we were getting food from. And I felt like I was going to have an anxiety attack. I'm like, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know, like, I know where I'm supposed to be, but now I've got to make this stop in between. And, like, my pulse was literally almost 100 beats per minute, which is very, very high for me. And I was like, I don't understand what's going on here. I can't make a simple decision. It's because I got so many other decisions. Uh, I read a study on a PBS uh, article that said we make about 35,000 remotely conscious decisions every day. Uh, 228 of those are just about food. That's just every day. 228 decisions about food. And I'm like, that number's a little low, if we're honest. (laughs) Because if you think about it, like, that sounds like a lot, 35,000 decisions. But if you think about it, like, just using food as an example, you're like, okay, am I hungry? Yes, there's a decision. But do I really want to eat? Yes, there's two decisions, right? And that just keeps spiraling and spiraling. And then we have other decisions about life. Like, big decisions about life that we're working through. And, like, we want, we, we pray as, as God's people. We pray and we ask God questions and we want concrete answers about things. Like, if you're single, you're praying, God, who will I marry? And you want a very specific answer. Like, you don't want God to be like, a brunette. <laughs> like, thanks, God. <laughs> no, you want specific answers. If you're praying about, about work or where you should live, you're praying and you're asking God specific questions and you want specific answers that you can put into place right away. Like you don't want any questions about it. You want, you want to pray and you want to hear God say, do this. And that's what you want is so that you can say, well, God said, and so I'm just going to do that. Right? We're praying and we're asking God questions and we're weighing things out and we're trying to figure things out. And they're good things, too. We want answers, and we should be praying and asking God questions. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3 says, Call to me, and I will answer you, and will tell you great and hidden things that you do not know. Like God says, ask me questions. We can read the book of Job, and we see that Job asked God a lot of questions. God chose not to answer those. We ask God questions, and that's good. And I bring this up for two reasons. One, because I think when we do read an answer in the Bible, we should stop and take notice. Like if we're reading through Scripture, and we've always got questions. If we're reading through Scripture and we see God answering a question, we should stop and take notice and say, okay, what do I do with this? And two, because this particular verse that I want us to look at this morning has been very helpful for me and my family. It's become our family motto for us. We have two mottos in my family. Uh, Farley's never quit, uh, which gets us into trouble, and do what's in front of you. Those are the two kind of general rules that we live by in my house. And since my kids were little, that's what we've talked about. This verse talks about that second one of do what's in front of you. Because this verse speaks to the question of God, what do you want from me? 
And that's the most important question we can be asking. Because we can ask questions about marriage. We can ask questions about jobs. We can ask questions about where to live. We can ask questions about what kind of car to buy. Like, I I ask God all sorts of questions. I, I can tell you one time, I was like, okay, there's a truck I wanted to buy. I am driving to the dealership. And I'm like, I'm going to buy this truck. And I was like, wait, I haven't prayed about this. God, should I buy this truck? And I clearly felt God like, no, you can't afford that truck. And I was like, well, decision made. We can ask God all sorts of questions. But the most important question that we're asking when we're trying to weigh out life decisions is, God, what do you want from me? That's what we want to know. Because at the end of the day, when we put our head on the pillow, that's the question. The answer to that question is what's going to help us sleep or not. Because we can make decisions that the world would say, that's stupid. Why would you do that? I, I know what God wants from me. And I'm okay. So this verse speaks to that question. God, what do you want from me? Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God wants from you. He wants you to be like him. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. When we're praying and we're asking God, well, God, what do you want from me? He's, I, I can tell you that. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with me. Now, now, what's good about this is on one hand, it's, it's, it's specific because it tells us what we need to know. Like, it gives us actionable steps of what we need to know. On the other hand, it's vague. And it's, that's good, too, because if it's vague, then it means we can put it into different situations depending on who you are and what's going on in your life. We've got all sorts of different people. We've got, we've got moms, we've got dads. There's two groups of people. Each one of you are going to have different ways where you can act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. You can be a doctor. You can be a lawyer. You can be a mechanic. You can be a a, a dishwasher. You can be anything in between. It's vague so that we can put it into different situations. And I want us to break them down and go through them a little bit uh, more in depth. So the first one is act justly. Another translation says do justice. And I like that because I like action words. Like I like something that like I can put into play right away. Do justice. But what does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to act justly? Well, like I said, it's kind of like a framework. So it's, it's, we can play with this a little bit and put it into something. But we have to be clear first. When we talk about doing justice, when we talk about acting justly, we have to understand that we're talking about it with a New Testament biblical definition of justice. That is different from how culture defines justice. Because culture's definition of justice is going to change depending on what's going on around them at the time. Justice that we as God's people care about is a New Testament biblical definition of justice, not how the world defines justice. I don't care how they define justice. I don't care what the law says about justice. I want to know how does God define justice. Because that's what's going to be important. That's what's going to give me peace. James helps us with this. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. That's really helpful, and there's a lot we could unpack with that, and there's a great conversation we could have with that. It's, it's fantastic, but I want to just pull just a little bit from that, and that's what James is talking about when he talks about 
orphans and widows in their distress. What he's talking about, these two specific groups of people that he's talking about, are those who um, considered vulnerable. It's people who didn't have anybody else to look after them. James is saying, look after the vulnerable who are oppressed. Look after those who can't defend themselves. Look, look, at, look after those who, 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 who need assistance and attention and help. And there's a lot of ways to do that. But first and foremost, I believe that it requires intentionality. It requires us as God's people to pay attention to what others uh, overlook and don't want to see. It requires us to open our eyes to specifically look at the things that other people don't want to look at. To act justly, to do justice, is to intentionally open our eyes to hard things. It requires us to look at the abused. It requires us to look at those who are taken advantage of. It requires us to slow down and see what we don't want to see. I have a friend, uh, she's a quadriplegic. Um, She used to be a gymnast. She landed wrong one time, and that was it. Now she's a quadriplegic. It's been, I don't know, probably 25 years in a wheelchair. She's been able to go all over the world and do justice because she sees people that others don't. And she's not seen as a threat because what is this lady in a wheelchair going to do? She's able to go do justice all over the planet because she sees what other people don't because she's at that level. She sees the, the, the plight of people in wheelchairs all over the planet and she's able to do things about it. It requires that we as God's people open our eyes and are intentional about looking for trouble. To do justice is to fight for those who are in need. And justice can be hard because it's often fighting when it hurts and it's fighting when it's hard, but it's worth it. Deuteronomy 16.20 says, Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Follow justice and justice alone. Justice is taking a stand when it matters. I remember when my family decided to do foster care and I say decided very loosely because it was really more like giving in. Um, we had been, the short version of the story is, we'd, we'd having a rough time as a family. Like, not like interpersonally, just things were going hard. Things were just difficult. Praying one morning before church. And I'm like, God, I just, I want to know like, what to do about this, what to do about this, what to do about this. Again, asking questions. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that until this morning. Uh, anyway, I'm asking questions. We come to church. And, like, like, each one of us was having our own different struggles. They weren't with each other, but each one of us were having a hard time in life. And we came to church, and it was, hello? There we are. Foster Care Sunday. Um, so uh, it was in May. Foster Care Sunday. Stand Sunday, I think. That's the right words for that. Yeah. So stand Sunday, and, we're like, we're sitting there, and I feel like God is saying, do it. And I was like, okay. And I felt like God was saying, To do this is to answer every question you're asking me. The answer of do this answers every question you're praying and everything you're wondering right now. And we did it. And it was hard and it was difficult. And one of the hardest things about doing foster care was the fact that it meant we opened our daughter's eyes. She was 13, 14 at the time? 12 at the time? I'm so good at numbers. Uh, She was 12 at the time. It meant opening our daughter's eyes to a world we didn't want her to know existed. A world of abuse. 
A world of trauma, a world of pain, a world of drugs. It meant opening our daughter's eyes to a world that we as her parents had been trying to protect her from. We had to answer a question. Do we do justice even though it's hard? Or do we disobey God? And we chose to do justice. And Julie always says, it's the greatest, hardest thing we've ever done. Hey, but it also means repenting when we fail. It means acknowledging the fact that at times we have the ability to do justice, and for whatever reason, we don't. I can't tell you how many times that I felt like God saying to do something, like, uh, you know, to, to be somewhere, to do something, or to say something, and I don't. For whatever reason, I'm busy, I'm in a bad mood, I'm so wrapped up in my own head, whatever the thing might be. Like God's telling me this is something I want you to do and I don't and then I'm driving away or whatever and I can just clearly feel God saying, you missed it. To do justice is to repent when we miss it. We can't fix every problem on earth and we cannot commit to fighting every injustice that's out there. But if we're honest with ourselves and with God, there are times where we can do something and choose not to. To do justice is to do those small steps. Love mercy. Sometimes uh, the word mercy here is translated as faithfulness. and Either way, the idea is to, to, to love goodness, and at that, a goodness that is directed towards others. Why? Because that's what God does. Hesed is the word that's used here in the Hebrew, and I absolutely love this word. It's so pregnant with meaning, uh, and it's usually associated with God, and there's another word, emet, that it's usually combined with, and it's steadfast love and faithfulness. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's used to describe God so often in the Old Testament to define, or de, uh, not define, but uh, to describe who he is. He is, he is mercy. Like, he has this abounding mercy that he always has to pull out and give to people. A good commentary I read said, God's has said denotes persistence and unconditional tenderness, kindness and a mercy, a relationship in which he seeks after mankind with love and mercy. And we're not just to be like that. The Bible says we are to love mercy. We're to love that. Like, we're to, we're to see that about God and go, oh, Jesus goes on and says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. So Jesus expounds upon this a little bit and says that when we give mercy, we receive mercy. We become this conduit that mercy can flow in and out of us, and all of a sudden, we get the mercy we need by giving mercy to others. And it's not hard. I shouldn't say it's not hard. It's very hard. (laughs) The opposite of what I want to say. It is very hard sometimes to give mercy, because to give mercy means that somebody needs it. Right? To give mercy to somebody means they need it, they didn't deserve it, they didn't earn it, they can't pay it back, but they need it. And you have to be the one to give it to them. And guess what? They're probably the person who hurt you. That's mercy. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing. We're giving something to somebody when what we want to give them is a neck hug. But instead, we give mercy. Because that means that we're saying... Okay, God, I am really upset with this person. I don't like this person at all in this moment. Help me give mercy to be like you. Now, we have to be clear. This does not mean you let people walk all over you. Sometimes 
I did it for my wife last night, and I won't say for who because it's nobody here. Don't worry. But uh, iPhones, with one of the recent updates, it's got this really cool thing where you can go in and like turn on like different uh, do not disturb settings, and you can pick people that you don't want notifications from. So I did that for her last night because she was not in a place to be able to give somebody mercy who needed it because they just kept pushing. Okay, we can give mercy, and sometimes mercy is, I'm not going to talk to you. That's okay. Instead of, let me tell you what I really think. Now, we align ourselves with God, and we give mercy, and then we receive mercy, and then we become a people of mercy. It's something, mercy is to be an attribute as a follower of Jesus. It should make us recognizable to others. I read this story uh, a couple years back about a missionary who had done all his missionary training. Like, he was going to Central America. He'd been learning Spanish. He was perfect with it. Uh, and he decided, all right, I'm going to go, and I'm going to do my missions in, in uh, I don't remember what country it was. But anyway, Guatemala. He goes down to Guatemala, and he's like, all right, but before I do anything, I just kind of want to get an idea of what's going on. So he goes into this local cantina and walks up to the, you know, place where you order drinks and orders a soda in perfect Spanish. I can't say that, so I won't. So he gets his soda, goes, and he sits down, sits in the back, but a half hour goes by. He's just sitting there watching what's going on, drinking a soda. Uh, and about a half hour goes by, and somebody comes up to him and says, what's an American doing here? And so in, in his perfect Spanish, he goes, what are you talking about? Like, what makes you think I'm an American? I'm just in here drinking a soda. And the person says, you, you walked in like an American. You drink your soda like an American. You sit here like an American. You're an American. Our mercy and our love for mercy should make us recognizable to people. That if we spend just a little bit of time with them, they go, you're one of those Christians, aren't you? First time somebody said that to me, he didn't say Christian, he said Jesus freak. And then he called me a holy roller. And I'm like, I don't know what any of this means. I didn't grow up in church. Are these good things or not? They were not compliments. But that's what we should be, is we should be recognizable to others by the mercy that we give out. And if we're honest, and this is not condemnation, because I'll, I'm going to tell you what I do in just a second, but this is not condemnation, but the church as a whole is not known as a people who love mercy. Unfortunately, today in our culture, we're known as a people who love a hammer, and we want to strike people down. And we want to give our opinion because our opinion is the opinion. I go through my Facebook feed or my memories every morning. Right? Does anybody look at their Facebook memories? Yeah, it is. So what I do is I don't delete things. Instead, I go back through. And I'm, I'm usually about, uh, I'm about 9 to 12 years at this point where I see something and I go, yeah, we're going to edit that privacy to only me. Because I don't want somebody else to see what I just posted nine years ago. Like, I look at it and I go, oh, that's not mercy. That's not love. That's worldly justice. That's my very strong opinions on whatever was happening that day. And I repent. And then I do it again the next day. There's a lot of repenting that goes on. But we're to be people who love mercy and are identified by it. Mercy and justice in the Bible are so closely intertwined. Love mercy. 
have an attitude of love and concern, and have a desire to care for others and act accordingly. What is the third thing God wants from us? To walk humbly with your God. Well, what does it mean to walk humbly with God? Well, first, I think we have to have an understanding of what humility is and is not. And you may have heard this quote. It's one of my favorite ones, C.S. Lewis. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's super helpful because humility is not saying bad things about yourself. Humility is not denying when somebody gives you a compliment. Humility is not about being a pick-me or or about pretending to be something that you're not. It's simply having a true evaluation of yourself and your relationship to God. It's about understanding that God is God and we are not. Because when we understand our position with God, our position in Christ, we can walk humbly. Because we know who we are. Again, growing up, my, my kids, whenever they would leave the house, we'd always tell them, remember who you are. That's a loaded statement for them. And we spent years unpacking that and helping them understand what that means. We as Christians, when we walk out these doors, remember who you are. Walk humbly with God. There's so much that we could talk about with that. But, but when we are, again, when we understand it, when we understand our position with Christ, we're willing to lay down our rights for the sake of others. Because it's easy, because we're walking humbly with God. We know who he is. Humility and walking humbly with God is linked to submission as well. Because submission is saying, God, I trust you in your plan, your ways, your wisdom. I trust it more than mine. It's saying, God, I have a lot of ideas but I set it all down for you. It's saying, God, I know what I want and what I would do, but I trust you, Jesus, so I submit to you. Humility is submission to God. Because in submission, we're given everything that we need from God. Because God says, I give grace to the humble. I exalt the humble. I lift up the humble. I put the humble on steady paths. God lifts up those who choose to be submissive to him. And Jesus gave us the best example of what it means to be humble and walk humbly with God and be submissive to the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Right? Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own. But does he mean that he does not possess the ability? No, absolutely not. How do we know that? Because when the guards come to arrest him in the garden, they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he say? I am he. And what does the Bible say? They fell down like dead men. Jesus' acknowledgement of who he is, the power that is within him, causes people to fall down like dead men. Jesus just calling forth and saying, Lazarus, come forth, brings a dead man to life. Jesus says all these things, but he still says, I can do nothing of my own. What is he saying? He's saying, I choose to be submissive to the Father. Because Adam messed this up. And I want you guys to see what it really looks like to be submissive. To not worry about the knowledge of good and evil, but instead the knowledge of God. Jesus demonstrates that for us. Because when we submit to God, what we're doing is we're allowing him to fight our battles. We're allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us and to accept his leading and his will and his trust. Humility is the act of submission because we trust God and the fact that he is the Almighty. 
I believe that humility is the key. Bless you. Humility is the key when we're struggling. When, when, again, so the, the question that we're answering here, the question I should say that we're asking is, God, what do you want from me? I want you to love. I want you to, to, to do justice. I want you to love mercy. I want you to walk humbly with me. If you do a quick little math thing, you've got seven different options that you can get out of that. That at any time in your life, you can put some combination of these things into play. You can, you can love justice and you can do mercy. You can love justice, do mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You can love mercy. You can walk humbly with God. You, can, you see what I'm saying? Like, math is beautiful. I'm no good at it, but it's wonderful. But there's always something that we can do. And I firmly believe with everything that was in, within me that walking humbly with God is one of those things that we can do every single day. Because every decision that we're up against, everything we're trying to figure out, we can stop what we're doing and say, Jesus... What would you do? And it becomes a whole lot easier. Now, sometimes he doesn't answer that question for us. He doesn't. And I think that's because he wants us to spend more time with him sometimes. Like, sometimes God doesn't say, do this. I've always found it funny. Like, when you're a new Christian, I swear every prayer you pray gets answered. Every question you ask, God, he's got an answer for you. Like five years go by. Like you start praying prayers and you stop seeing answers. And you're like, what's going on? Like I thought I was like super holy and spiritual. Like I was praying about stuff and God was overnight delivering it to my door. I'm asking questions and Jesus is like showing up in my bedroom, sitting on my bed, talking to me, telling me stuff. Five, ten years into this, all of a sudden I feel like I'm alone. I feel like he's not answering prayers. I feel like he's not giving me answers. And we start, what do we start to do? What am I doing wrong? That's a horrible question to ask out loud because there is someone who wants to answer that question for you. If you have kids, it's them. When you don't have kids, it's the enemy. And we're back and forth. But we start to wonder, like, what, what is, what's going on here? And we start to go through our life. And I don't know if you're like me, but that means you start cleaning house, like literally. You start looking at stuff, and you're like, I shouldn't be listening to this music, and get rid of it. I shouldn't be watching these movies. I get rid of them. Now Jesus will speak to me. He's like, it had nothing to do with that. What I want is you to spend time with me, because that's what's most important. Walking humbly with God is the most important thing we can do when we're trying to answer the question, God, what do you want from me? I want you to walk with me. I want you to submit. And so that means sometimes he doesn't answer the questions and sometimes he doesn't answer the prayer. But in the end, what we're getting is a relationship with the God of the universe. We're getting a relationship with the one who, who fought up dinosaurs, who hung stars, who rose from the dead, who, who has a plan for the future, who will come back in ultimate victory and wipe away every tear from the planet. That's who, what we're, that's who we're worshiping. That's who we're serving. That's who we're walking with. And he says, I could care less if you get the thing or don't get the thing. I could care less if, if it makes you happy or if it doesn't make you happy. What I want is you to walk with me because I want you. And I want you to want me. Right? The kinks had something going there. That's what he wants. So when we're asking the question, God, what do you want from me? 
Like, I know, I, I love you people. I know that you're asking the same question. There have been times where so many of us have been on our knees crying through a situation going, God, what do you want from me? He says, I want you. That's what I want from you. I want you to, to love other people. I want you to do justice. I want you to care for those who need it. I want you to intentionally expose yourself to pain and violence and trauma and situations that you don't want to see. I want you to love mercy. I want you to have an attitude of love and concern for others. And I want you to walk with me. I want you to walk humbly with me. I want you to submit to me and trust me. That's what he wants. Now, whoever's closing this out, Aaron, the band, anybody else, I don't know. When we're asking that question, when we're weighing out all the things in our life, when we're struggling with decision fatigue, when we feel like we're going to have an anxiety attack because we can't decide if we want Chick-fil-A or Wendy's, that's when we can stop and go, there's something messed up here. And God says there is. So here's what you need to do. Love justice. Or do justice. Love mercy. And walk humbly with me. And that might not answer any of the questions you're asking. But we might also find that we're asking the wrong questions. 